Dr. Barbara Fougere was born in England and raised in Australia. She earned her veterinary degree from Murdoch University in 1986. After graduation, she went into practice and spent some time in the UK doing locum work before returning home to Australia. She founded her practice, All Natural Vet Care, in 1997 as a mobile practice and evolved to a brick and mortar practice in 2003. She did postgraduate work in organizational development, social science, and business management before becoming interested in holistic medicine. She earned a master's degree in health science with a focus on herbal medicine in 2005. She co-authored the textbook, Veterinary Herbal Medicine with Dr. Susan Wynn, which was published in 2006. That same year, she and Dr. Marsden founded the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies, the world's first online college teaching integrative veterinary medicine. Dr. Fougere is a current board member of the Veterinary Botanical Medical Association and the American College of Veterinary Botanical Medicine. She has served as a director for numerous conventional and holistic veterinary organizations and is a member of many more. She has lectured internationally, contributed to numerous textbooks, and written a number of scientific articles. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Fougere as we discuss her education, her exposure to holistic medicine, founding CIVT, her health journey, and the recent merger of CIVT with Royal Animal Health University. Dr. Fougere, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. Absolute pleasure. So where were you born? In England. Andover, oh. England. And uh, I was born there in the 60s, and uh, but I've lived in Australia pretty much all my life, except when I went back to work in London as a young vet uh, in the 80s. And, uh, and, and, and learned how to do five-minute consults. Uh, started treating ponies in the Midlands of England and I'd never treated horses before. Um, so, yeah, it was an interesting experience being a locum. Yeah. You know, a lot of the veterinarians that I've talked to from Australia have done that. It's kind of like a rite of passage. So most vets uh, graduate, they might do six months to a year at home and then they're off traveling. Um, Australians like to travel and certainly young vets like to travel as well. And so you weren't alone when I was working in London. I pretty much had half of my classmates there as well. So, you know, we'd get up and around, um, traveling around uh, the UK and Europe on the weekends. It was great. Oh, that's kind of fun. So did you always want to be a veterinarian? Yeah, pretty much. Um, that's all I ever thought I would be and from the moment that I saw my father slaughter a sheep for meat coming off the farm and looking at the innards of a sheep being strewn on the ground and all those gizzards and intestines were just fascinating to me uh, and I was just fascinated by the anatomy and um, you know animals and I loved animals I was saving tadpoles from kids that wanted to squash them I was the first person in with, you know, finding a stray cat and bringing it home. Um, so, yeah, that's that's all I ever knew that I wanted to be. Although there was a time when I was um, at university in vet school and, of course, you know, the exam pressure and everything else, I thought, you know what, I'd love to be a flight attendant. I'd love to travel around the world, live the glamorous lifestyle. So, two, well, 18 months after I, I graduated uh, as a vet and I was working in practice, I was actually managing a, a a practice um, as a young graduate and uh, the opportunity came up and I joined Qantas as a flight attendant. So I flew around the world for about three and a half years and on my off schedule, I would work um, part-time as a vet 
Um, so I was doing a combination of being a veterinarian and a and a international flight attendant for Qantas. So that was fun. Oh wow! So um, inter- you, you were flying internationally. What were your favorite places to go? The U.S. and uh, probably um, Greece. I, I learned how to ski in Greece, and because uh, where I came from in Western Australia, there were no mountains with snow so learning how to to ski was uh, fabulous Rome I loved that and I made it a point um, when I was in different cities to basically knock on the door of local vets that I you know just walk past and say hello and I got to sort of understand just how different practices were in different countries and what their emphasis was and what their um, cult- the, the different cultures within the veterinary um, community as well um, for example, in Indonesia, um, most veterinarians at that time were government vets. They looked after production animals and a number of them had sort of side hustles, which was looking after small animals. But really, small animal medicine was so um, uh, uh, deficient in tools. Like they, you know, IV fluids weren't really a thing and they had so many animals with parvovirus. So I saw these sorts of situations where the veterinarians were kind of hampered by just not having the medicines and the tools, but they did what they could do. Um, that's completely changed now in Indonesia. There's some really um, top-notch practices, you know, that uh, are very well equipped and practicing very high in medicine. So things, thank, thank goodness, have changed. But that, I could say the same thing about the UK. I worked in practices where some practice, practitioners stored their vaccines on the windowsill, which really kind of surprised me. And I saw some really poor practices, but I also saw some very top-end practices. So the huge variation in um, in practices and practice styles was really interesting to me. Oh, I can imagine just being a, being a locum and and yeah. seeing all those different ways that people do things. Well, you know, one of the things that I did was spend some time in India, actually on an ashram, um, and that's when I first came across homeopathy because I was involved in transferring some. Uh, deer from a private um, zoo which was part of the ashram where I was um, staying um, to a uh, government national park just outside of Mumbai and I was sort of sitting in a truck traveling with the deer in the back and two government vets and you know we'd stop for lunch and uh, I got invited to their um, to their place of work and they were showing me how they would treat animals with homeopathy and I thought gee these are government vets it's obviously endorsed and uh, that was the really first trigger for me to um, start studying homeopathy it was probably one of the first integrative um, uh, modalities that I that I looked at there weren't any veterinary courses in those days so I did a human course um, but that really opened my eyes up to other ways of um, addressing and, and treating challenging cases. There was a, a tiger that had a urinary tract infection and the way that they would get the sample was basically walk behind it with a baffle board and the tiger would just pee on them, um, spray on them, and they would click the urine sample very cleverly and be able to <laughs> test it. But they were treating it with uh, homeopathy, which I just found wow. you know, really interesting. So what kind of time frame was this? Uh, this was when were you the- there? In the 80s. Um, yeah. Yeah, late 80s. Moving deer is, is not an easy proposition, is it? No. And, you know, I thought we were doing the right thing. I thought, gosh, getting them out of the zoo, sort of, you know, more confined environment into a national park would be great. But what I discovered afterwards was that uh, they wanted more deer in the park because the tigers were encroaching on the villagers that lived on the outskirts of the 
um, of, of the national parks. So there was a safety issue um, with these tigers and humans interacting. And so they wanted more deer there, essentially, I guess, as prey. Um, so I was a bit um, disappointed with that because I felt like I'd been part of something that probably I might not have agreed upon had I been fully aware. But it made it, it did make sense um, to destock um, you know, the zoo and to, uh, to stock the national park. Yeah. So with all this travel, was, was food a big part of it? Do you enjoy eating various things? Oh my goodness. Yes. And still do. <laughs> in fact, uh, it's, it's a lot of what I do in my spare time now is experiment with food and, um, look at how I can take something that I really want to eat and make it even healthier. Um, so I've got a bit of an obsession about that. Um, right now and oh my goodness I've just discovered the most brilliant bread um, you can find it online called the um, life-changing bread recipe and it's sunflower seeds flaxseed chia oatmeal um, what else is in there uh, water and um, a little bit of tiny bit of maple syrup and it's so easy to cook you just mix it all together and throw it in the oven and it is the most delicious bread so that's you know what my current obsession is making bread uh, that's, been bread. A, that's been a big thing here with uh, with coronavirus and people stuck at home is, is bread making Baking. <laughs> yeah 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 but, I, so but I, love, I love spicy food I love you know international food and uh, I don't I don't uh, generally eat meat um, very rarely. Um, I, when I was uh, um, completely vegetarian a number of years ago, I was in Indonesia and I was invited to a, a temple festival and uh, I found myself being offered food as a special guest and there was uh, goat meat um, in the meal and I just had to swallow it and not chew it. Um, but uh, my diet is largely plant-based now and um, that's that's you know, I really enjoy that we grow our own vegetables and um, have a permaculture garden. So um, there's nothing nicer than picking your own herbs and, and vegetables and, and finding some way to cook them into something delicious. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so at what point, I mean, you went back to school sort of in the early 90s. What was the genesis there of wanting to uh, get some more uh, education? Well, I, I started vet school when I was 17 and finished when I was 22, which is kind of normal in Australia. Um, we don't do a, a pre-degree before getting into vet school. Um, so I was very young when I graduated. And as I said, the first thing I did was um, homeopathy. Um, and then I studied um, Japanese economic theory. Um, I did half half of an economics um uh, degree but then ended up with studying social sciences and uh, business management uh, so I did some postgraduate studies there I did a master's in organizational development and training um, fascinated with organizational development and and how people learn um, then I studied herbal medicine and acupuncture and you know I pretty much continuously studied up until probably the last 10 years and even then I still study I still learn um, and I I found myself um, back in practice and I knew I want I wasn't in the place that I needed to be but there wasn't a model for me to replicate um, so I started doing complementary medicine very early on and then I thought the only way I'm going to be able to do this is to start my own practice. So that's kind of how that evolved. And so probably for the last 20 years, I've been involved with integrative um, 
practice or, or running a practice. Um, and yeah, but never stop studying. I actually love learning. So that's no challenge for me. Um, what year did you start your own practice? 96, I think, 97. Somewhere wow. Oh, no, no, sorry. Okay. Uh, the practice, well, I had a mobile practice to begin with, as a lot of integrative yeah. practitioners start off with mobile practice. Um, that was in the 1970s, 1997, but actually launched a physical practice in 2003. In the, is it in the same location it is, it is as it is now? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so at what point, I know you studied with Carrie Bone, at what point did that come up? That would have been around about less than 2000, so late 1990s to 2000, around that period, because I know I sat the VBMA exam in 2003, um, so I was already practicing herbal medicine, and um, I did a um, uh, advanced certificate in human herbal medicine, and then ended up doing a master's of herbal medicine. Um, which uh, was human human medicine based, um, and that was I think I got that qualification. I can't remember in the early two thousands anyway. For the for those who don't aren't aware, can you explain the difference between a graduate diploma and a master's? So a graduate diploma um, in Australia is two thirds of a master's degree. So generally, you can roll over from a graduate diploma into a master's. Um, so graduate diplomas are generally two year duration, and masters are three years du duration. But they're very very similar in their academic intent, um, but they have pathways so that you can. Um, um, you know, for example, if you do the master's, then you can go on and do a PhD. Um, so I did two master's um, degrees, but decided that I haven't really come up with a PhD idea yet, but maybe that's something I'll do at a later date. Actually, I do have an idea for a PhD, but I just don't know if I've got the, um, the drive to do that. I don't think I need to do that, but I do love to study and I love research, so... Um, I think there's ways of researching without having to um, take on academia and um, the bureaucracy of the university system, but uh, it suits some people. Yeah, and there is a lot of there is a lot of opportunity. That's for sure. You did one. Um, you did a PhD. I did. Yeah, I did. It's just uh, just a slog like everything else. You just put your <laughs> nose down and you just do it. You know, get, get through it. Yeah. It seems like a PhD is you know a lot of people get stalled, and that's the forward momentum is the important thing. Yeah. I think it's really yeah. tough for people right now. I actually thought about that um, with um, the pandemic. Um, so many um, uh, people that are studying or doing their PhDs just can't access laboratories, can't access what they need to finish. And it must be so frustrating, you know, getting stalled halfway through. Oh, yeah. Oh, it, it, yeah. Incredible. So you had started the practice and then if I'm doing my math right, um, CIVT in the textbook, the herbal textbook, kind of came alive at the same time. Mm. Uh, yeah, 2000. The book was published in 2006, but you know, um, Dr. Susan Wynn and myself worked on that for a good three years. I mean, it was a pretty, um, pretty time-consuming. I'd say that was the PhD that we both did <laughs> because oh, I mean, yeah. it consumed every evening, every weekend, um, plowing through the research, putting it together, working with some phenomenal people um, that contributed to the textbook um, and getting it all together. It was a labour of love and I thoroughly enjoyed it. 
Um, and, you know, there's another book in me now because I'd love to um, to essentially update um, some of that material. Um, and the college came around about in about 2006. Um, I uh, put together a course here in Australia on Chinese herbal medicine and invited Dr. Steve Marston to come out um, to Australia and... Um, and teach. And uh, from that, um, I um, started looking at how we could create a, 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 an accredited college in Australia. And that was a lengthy process. It took a couple of years to have the college fully accredited um, as a registered training organisation and to go through all the, the hoops to um, make that happen. And from that, we were able to then um, put together government accredited qualifications. So we off offered three postgraduate degrees um, that are fully um, uh, endorsed um, as as postgraduate degrees. So that, that was that was a big project and um, again um, probably uh, well more, more work than the book I think um, but well worth it because uh, there are people now that are that are qualified and we've really sort of um, created the opportunity for people to study veterinary modalities at a very high level um, and, you know, certainly they've been the first qualifications in the world um, in veterinary integrative medicine. So we're very proud of that. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you, let me back up for a second. How did you and Dr. Wynn find each other? Mm, I guess through herbal medicine, through um, a shared love of herbal medicine. I think I met Susan, gosh, in the US at an AHVMA conference, perhaps, as I met Steve, um, when he, I think when he very first presented um, at the AHVMA conference. Um, I can't remember where it was, but there's been so many of them. Um, but yeah, I met Susan in the US and we had a lot in common. And um, and when the book opportunity arose, um, we knew that we could work together and um, we had a great time. Was it difficult finding a publisher or did you have the idea and go to a publisher or did a publisher kind of, how did that come about? The publisher, the publisher came to Susan in the first instance. Susan had already published um, a couple of uh, uh, texts and yeah. um, Susan rang me and said, you know, what do you think about this? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. That that's That would be a fantastic um, project, never, never realizing how much work was in it. But um, yeah, as I said, labor of love. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about the amount of work that went into that. So it was really wrapped up and coming about to be published when the CIVT venture launched. Yeah. And well, it was kind of separate in my mind. I didn't really think of it yeah. as a, um, as a natural progression. It was just, and then I had time to, um, to think about what's next. And, um, I had always, you know, I did a master's in, in organizational development and training. And I was interested in teaching and learning and, um, how I had the skills and the um, ability to um, develop these these qualifications um, with support from you know experts um, such as Susan Wynn and and Steve Marston and uh, was able to sort of pull it all together with with that kind of background. I don't think I would have been able to do it without that. Um, so it was just a sort of a natural progression. And when I was in practice, I always thought to myself, you know, I can see. 20 patients a day um, and I can affect change with those 20 patients but wouldn't it be great if we could um, share this share this interest in integrative medicine and and the amazing things that we can do and the way that we can um, actually practice health 
rather than just treating disease. And to do that, we had to spread what we know. And I wanted to gather the, the people that were the movers and shakers and people that had the skills and knowledge and how we could share that information. So CRVT became the platform for that. It became a way of um, not just myself, but um, other um, teachers being able to um, come on board and share their knowledge and um, build build people's capacity and skills um, to do these things. Yeah. So was it any more difficult getting the accreditation being an online platform versus a brick and mortar? Uh, not really. I mean, um, you can have brick and mortar and um, not necessarily have the best education. And you know right now that globally online is the only way to go. Um, certainly in Australia, the pandemic has forced universities and colleges everywhere to pivot and to go online. And so best practice um, is evolving. But I think we had, we were the first to go online, the first college, veterinary college internationally to go online. And I had studied um, e-learning um, and best practice at the time, and that's an evolving thing. And uh, being able to sort of implement um, that best practice um, in our courses um, meant that, you know, we were sort of leading, leading the way. And I look at how quickly people have had to evolve um, the university system here. And, you know, instead of saying, well, brick and mortar is best, now they're saying online is actually the best that we've got right now. And, and it's nice to have face-to-face -face learning, but in these times, um, you make the best of what you've got. And online is, um, if it's done well, um, is, um, you know, is, is no different in terms of the outcomes, the educational outcomes than brick and mortar. In fact, for veterinarians, the college has been a lifesaver. We get a lot of comments from vets that say, well, I can't travel. You know, I've got kids or I'm in a remote area. I can't leave my practice. I'm a sole practitioner and I want to learn. And so what we've been able to do is meet that need um, for, for busy practitioners to be able to, to learn, um, you know, in their own practices or at home, which has been um, a gift for them. Oh, Yeah. It makes perfect sense. And I can see now that having had all those things in place prior to the most recent reasons to go online, yeah. you know, that things, things are be a lot smoother having done that planning. But, you know, we've done lots of face-to-face -face seminars and courses as well um, with the college. So uh, people have had the opportunity to meet. And that's something that I really love is seeing students online that I've met in person being able to put a, a face to a name and uh, that's, you know, it's absolute pleasure for me because I feel like I've just met so many amazing veterinarians with amazing stories and amazing practices all around the world and that's been one of the great professional joys for me is is those connections. Yeah. Um, when you look at what you had to do to, to accredit the program and the things that you have to do to continue that, and just in comparing... I know you're part of the the um, Herbal Medicine College and trying to get that through as uh, a board specialty. How does that? How does the the training that you're providing through CIVT compare to, say, a residency training? As far as its as far as its, uh, I want to say the uh, the accreditation aspect of it. You know, okay. well, it seems to me like residency training would be the quality would be all across the board. Yeah, so I have never been a resident, um, so I, I probably can't do a direct comparison. However, if you're talking about rigour, 
um, rigor of um, course content and rigor of assessment. Um, the qualifications that we um, have put together are what are called competency-based training, which, you know, people would say, um, what's the difference? Um, I guess the difference is examinations. Um, these qualifications don't have exams because what we're really interested in is can you demonstrate your knowledge and can, can you demonstrate your skill across time and across different situations so that it's not about rote learning or about, you know, um, studying to pass exams. It's about a continuous um, demonstration of the development of those um, skills and knowledge. So that's what competency-based training is. So the assessment is very much work-placed. Um, so it's about your the cases that you treat. It's about what you do within your practice um, and practice-based skills and showing us that you uh, can do that stuff. So it's a little bit different from a residency, which is, you know, within a, uh, an academic environment. Um, that's not to say the courses aren't academic. Um, what we try to do is um, not just look at the traditional basis of these modalities, but actually what the science is saying about those modalities right now. And, you know, having been part of the team with the American College of Veterinary Botanical Medicine um, in trying to have herbal medicine as a specialty, um, what we're trying to do is to demonstrate, you know, that there is an evidence base. There is a huge amount of science behind the herbs that we use. Not a lot of direct clinical trials with animals in veterinary medicine, but a, a phytopharmacological basis that is inarguable. Um, uh, but that's very hard to get across to our colleagues. And uh, I'm hoping that we'll get there. Uh, but it does require our colleagues to at least have an open mind to review the information and to look at the evidence base um, and to speak to practitioners that are using it. Um, there are so many practitioners that are using hmm, acupuncture but also herbal medicine um, that, you know, the results speak for themselves. The clinical outcomes are right in front of us. And I found it so exciting this week when one of my colleagues in my practice told me that a fantastic oncologist that we've worked with for probably the last 10 years um, uh, is asking where she can learn about herbal medicine. She sees our cases. She wants to do some studies with us to look at um, outcomes and standard of care and then uh, adding in herbs because she's seeing the patients that we're seeing and seeing that there's something different about what we're doing and the outcomes. And she wants to learn herbal medicine. And, and you know, it's taken 10 years, but she's always been open. She's always, you know, we've referred to her, she's referred to us, and we've worked very well collegially. And I just think, yep, you know, the tide is turning. And the people that are coming to herbal medicine right now, and certainly to the college, are oncologists. We have a number of oncologists, as well as internal medicine um, specialists that are studying with CIVT, because they're starting to say, hey, there's, there's other tools out there, and we need to know more about them and what we might be able to do to, to uh, make a difference to our, to our patients. I think that's, 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 that's really what we set out to do and it's starting to happen. So a bit more time and I think we'll get there. And I, I see herbal medicine as one of the modalities that can be integrated into veterinary, um, veterinary practice in the most easy way because there is a phytopharmacological basis. And if you understand pharmacology, um, you can understand how herbs work. You bet. It is exciting to see the kind of one domino at a time, I suppose. Yeah. Well, yeah. Dr. Erin Bannock, who I absolutely adore, she is a brilliant oncologist and she was a graduate from CIVT. She's now, she's going out now 
teaching um, Chinese herbal Chinese herbal medicine and its influence in oncology and to see that evolution, you know, the branching out of education and um, experts in their area now taking it to the next level, I just think is phenomenal. And uh, I think they will drive a lot of the change as well. And it's great to see people like Dr. Kendra um, Pope and Dr. Erin Bannock, both oncologists now involved with the American College of um, uh, Veterinary Botanical Medicine um, come on board and, and help drive that change. Yeah, certainly has been a, uh, the oncologists have driven a lot of things over here for sure. Yeah. So I think before we go, we should talk about the merger, the merger of CIVT with uh, Royal Animal Health University. How did yeah. that come about and, and what are your thoughts going forward? <laughs> um, well, uh, Dr. Barbara Royal and Dr. Natasha Lilly um, and I sat down to breakfast a couple of years ago at a conference and we talked about you know, what we were both interested in doing and what needed to be done in the world, the pressures on the world um, from a climate perspective, from a, um, well, we didn't have the pandemic then, but certainly um, feeling um, this um, perturbation occurring um, in the world and what we might be able to do to contribute to um, making changes that we felt were important. And one of them is the idea of One Health. And CRVT's mission has always been about not just the health of animals, but of people and the planet. And um, so we had a very, very similar vision um, about what needed to happen. And education and veterinarians, I think, are, are so well-placed to influence community and influence um, people about their own health care and the health care of the animals. And in order to do that, we need to have a healthy planet. So it was a really natural conversation about how we could work better together. And I guess I we'd always thought we would do something do something together as a team and then unfortunately in late 2017 um, I was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer and that really made me realize that um, I needed to um, have a team come together um, I had a fabulous team to work with don't get me wrong but if this was going to evolve, we needed to do it sooner rather than later. So that's all happened over the last couple of years and the merger is now um, in place. And um, Dr. Barbara Royal and Natasha Lilly are absolutely phenomenal people to work with and they have taken to this merger like ducks to water. And I just see a really um, fantastic future where we can have more of the integrative um, doctors come on board and share their knowledge and teach with us. Um, and, it, and it's really interesting that right now there's a conversation around retirement and what veterinarians can do uh, around retirement and people wanting to teach. Well, this is a platform that they can join, that they can teach and share their knowledge. Um, so they should approach um, the college if they're interested in teaching because that's what it's there for. It's for, for, for sharing information and knowledge and and sharing those skills with other practitioners around the world. And it's certainly global. And I think that's um, a, a great um, strength that we can bring in ideas and uh, innovation um, from all over the world um, to influence not just health, but the environment. We've got an amazing course on environmental medicine. Um, and, you know, we want to do more in sustainability and um, in regenerative agriculture um, is another area we want to get into bee health and how we can influence um, our pollinators that we need um, and, 
you know, we need to do more to help those little guys with fluffy bodies and, and furry wings. Um, and, yeah, we've got all these ideas of how we can, can affect um, positive change. So what's occupying your time now? Well, a lot of my time is spent researching cancer and um, cooking good food. Um, I spend a lot of my time um, being really abreast of, I had to use that word, um, leading, edge, leading edge research. I'm looking at it almost every day. Um, and I uh, have developed a protocol which saw me being metastatic in 2019 to um, having a dormant disease at the moment. So I have been uh, continuing to research, research that and stay one step ahead. So, yeah, researching cancer takes up a lot of my brain space. And I have to say for the last three years, I've been struggling with cognitive dysfunction um, following chemotherapy and also being plunged into um, menopause following chemotherapy. And I've only just come out from under a cloud. So despite that cognitive dysfunction, you know, I've really pushed myself to read journal articles to really um, use my brain and try and train my brain. And I think my brain function is now starting to come back. I could not hold this conversation that we're having right now last year or the year before. I just couldn't access the words in my brain. And uh, one of my dear colleagues, um, a veterinarian who was a mentor of mine, has just been diagnosed with dementia. Um, she's probably 10 years older than I am, but I've started researching dementia as well to see what we can do to assist her. And um, I'm finding myself in a community now of women um, with all different kinds of cancer and looking at innovative ways of dealing with challenging cases and my methodology has been looking at cancer metabolism and I'm sharing this information with veterinary oncologists. I've certainly shared it with Dr. Erin Bannock and uh, some oncologists here in Australia because I think what I am doing can be easily applied to veterinary medicine and what I'm finding really interesting is some of the papers coming out right now on oncology and veterinary medicine are looking at the very same strategies that I have put together and uh, so I'm finding that very exciting I'm finding that applying what I know in integrative medicine to my own health and to the health of um, friends that I've met um, on this journey um, has been invaluable and, and I wonder why I got breast cancer in the first place and I think you know I've kind of been gifted with um, a, a huge amount of knowledge over the years and my attitude and approach to treating challenging diseases has really been my lifesaver. I don't think I'd be where I am right now without that experience and knowledge to find solutions for myself because I can tell you I went to three oncologists when I knew that I was metastatic and said, what do I do? And they said, well, we can't really do anything until you've actually got a new lesion or a new mass and then we can help you. And I just thought, what? I've got to wait until I get another solid lesion before you'll do something and uh, that really forced me into an incredible state of fear where it it forced me to plunge into the research and find some solutions and I found it in PubMed I found the answers in PubMed I also found a laboratory um, that was uh, doing research on metastatic disease and they were awesome in assisting in looking at my cell types and giving me some information on the phenotyping 
which was a way that I could monitor my treatment and actually see that it was working. So I've been able to prove with an N equals one that this combination of repurposed drugs and supplements um, actually can switch cells from a mesenchymal form to an epithelial form, which is a dormant form. And now I'm working really hard looking through the research and implementing a program to actually deal with those senescent cancer cells and see if I can actually get rid of them. But unfortunately, um, I'm unable to measure that at the moment, but um, watch this space. And I've also been working with um, two universities to get some research into this. So I've got um, a university in Victoria looking at um, applying this protocol in a mouse model. Um, and I never think in a million years that I would be involved with animal research or endorse it. Um, but I've been reassured by um, the professor that's doing this that um, the mice models that they utilise um, for metastatic uh, breast cancer, she said, um, they're as happy as um, pigs in, um, in their socialisation <laughs> and the food and everything else. And, you know, when I think about what this might mean for women uh, with breast cancer, and it's a trade-off between using animal models and what it could potentially mean towards women's lives and also their mental state, being able to get control of these diseases, I think it's worth it, weighing it all up. But there's also another university that wants to look at the metabolic impact of um, the protocols that I've put together. So, yeah, I'm finding that really interesting and um, talking to GPs, a lot of um, integrative doctors that are interested in these protocols. So I'm, I'm kind of, I guess it's my new hobby, my new interest um, is cancer. And I think there's going to be some leverage and we're going to be able to apply some of this to veterinary medicine as well. So I'm excited about that, that it's not for nothing. Good. Good. Wonderful. Well, I think that's probably a good place to stop. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time. And thanks for all you've given our, uh, our community and the oh, way of te your, your teaching and your volunteering and, and all of that. Yeah. The only, the only way that I've ever been able to do that is to have teachers that taught me as well. So my thanks um, goes out to all the, the veterinarians and colleagues who have um, been part of my um, professional life and have um, taught me what they know. And, um, you know, I think uh, there's also a really strong um, push for any of the veterinarians listening um, to this podcast. If you have got skills and knowledge that you want to share, um, then please share it. Please teach. Please uh, talk to CIVT and uh, see what you can do to um, impart your knowledge and skills um, to, to younger colleagues coming up. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks again, Barbara. Okay. All right. Hope to see you soon. Me too. Bye. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. ZIVT provides world-leading education in natural medicine, including three accredited postgraduate qualifications, industry-recognized certifications, and a wide range of evidence-based courses and webinars delivered by qualified and experienced practitioners. By bridging cutting-edge science and tradition, CIVT helps you to expand your treatment options to tackle your most challenging cases. And whether you're a veterinarian, veterinary technician or nurse, animal health professional, or someone who wants to learn more, they have the right course for you. Investigate their offerings at civtedu.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you take the time to tell a friend and to give us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next time.